please join with me in the reading of God's word. Today we will be reading from Numbers 13, 17 through 14, 4, as well as chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebo Hamath, and they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahimon, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell on the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw all the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out as a land that devours the inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now to verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the God of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Calvary family. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to be here with you in a difficult season that we're going through as a nation and as a church. 
So I just wanted to start off our morning by uh, extending a, a word of, of love to our black and, black and brown community here at Calvary. As a staff, we just want to say that we love you. Uh, we grieve with you. The Bible says to grieve with those who grieve, and I can only try to understand what it feels like to see yet another black man murdered and the fear and the unrest that, that can trigger in your lives. I also want to say that we want to listen to you during the season. And finally, that we need you here. That I know it can't always be easy to attend a church where you aren't part of the majority culture, but we so appreciate your presence and your wisdom and your patience and your courage, and you are a vital part of our family. So I just wanted to start off by saying that before we turn towards our sermon. As some of you might know, I moved here from Birmingham, Alabama, a place with a long history of violence towards African Americans, but the location of some great moments of courage as well. And I was recently reading about the life of Fred Shuttlesworth, who was an African-American pastor and leader in the civil rights movement of the 1960s who worked with Dr. Martin Luther King and others to organize the nonviolent resistance that was the centerpiece of that movement. And as an early civil rights leader, Reverend Shuttlesworth was attacked over and over again by those who wanted to stop his work. He got his house bombed by the KKK on Christmas Day as he was preparing to leave the battle to desegregate the buses in Birmingham. Another time, a mob beat Shuttlesworth with chains and baseball bats and brass knuckles. And these are just a couple of examples of attacks that he endured. And after one of the attacks, he said, and I quote, I'm here for the duration. The fight is just beginning, and I'm not going to look back and see who's following me. Boys step back. Men step forward. And to me, that's an example of some amazing courage. And I think what Reverend Shuttlesworth was saying is that there's times to retreat, and there are times to fight. And this, for him, was a time to fight, that God had given him a burden and a calling, and the only option for him was to press in. And some things that God calls us to are so important, they're so essential, that to shrink back would be a disaster. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We see in the Bible there's a story when Israel was finally called to go and fight, and the stakes were very high. They were faced with a choice that would have a huge implication for themselves and for the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been following along with us the last few weeks in the story of the Bible, I hope you've seen how the Bible holds up the journey and the story of Israel from Egypt to the promised land as a sort of template or metaphor for the Christian life. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, "'For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters,' that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate from the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual rock for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul writes this, and that word example in the original language is the word type or typos, which would mean it was the word for when you imprinted or stamped a pattern onto something. So if you had a piece of metal and you stamped the imprint of a coin on it, that's what the word meant. My sister had a baby this morning, actually, which is exciting. Uh, And that baby is stamped with the imprint of his parents. For better or for worse, he will look like and act like them, and he will move into patterns laid out for him by his parents. And God holds up the story of the Exodus generation to us as our spiritual parents. Like them, we were slaves to sin and death and the kingdom of darkness. And like them, we were sent a redeemer who set us free. Like he did for them, God battled and defeated the enemy of his people. Like them, we were spared by the blood of the Lamb. Like them, we have passed through the waters of baptism and passed from death to life. Like them, we have received God's word and we receive his nourishment on our journey. Like them, we are headed to the promised land, a land of rest. So we are invited to find ourselves in the story this morning. Now, the story has actually moved fairly quickly up until this point. Israel has been at Sinai, Mount Sinai, for about a year, where they almost immediately rebelled with the golden calf incident that we looked at last week. And then they spent the next nine months building the tabernacle, receiving instruction, and preparing for the journey. And so our story picks up this morning at the southern edge of the promised land, at a little oasis called Kadesh Barnea. And it's all been leading up to this. For 400 years since God first promised to Abraham that he would give his descendants a land of their own, Israel has been waiting and telling this story, generation after generation, waiting for this moment. I'm sure they talked about it around the campfire at night. I wonder what the land will be like. Will there be mountains? Will it be flat? Will it be good for farming? I wonder what animals live there. Will we be able to be safe? Can we defend ourselves? Hundreds of years of talking and wondering and waiting for the promise to come. And now finally, they can see it. The procession from Sinai arrives at the southern border. Spies are sent out one from each tribe, 12 spies, to scope out the land. And the people camp, and they wait for the 40 days for the spies to come back and to give a report. So finally, the spies return, and they say two things. First, they say the land is, the land is amazing. They bring back a cluster of grapes that's so heavy that it takes two men to carry it. They say the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's everything God said it was going to be. But then the second thing they report is that they say the battle is impossible. The battle is impossible. The people there are huge, the spies report, besides the two. They say the walls are massive, and we even saw the Nephilim 
which are the giants from the days of the flood. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole there. And when the people hear this from the ten spies, they ignore the report of Caleb and Joshua, and they start preparing to stone, to stone them, to stone Caleb and Joshua. And the text makes it clear that they would rather go back to their misery and their slavery in Egypt than to press into the promise. They would rather be slaves in Egypt again than to risk the battle that they face. And so God, to punish them, gives them exactly what they want. If you see in Numbers 14, verse 28, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. So you want to stay, you don't want to go into the land, you'll die in the wilderness. You want to go back to Egypt, let's head out towards the Red Sea. And back they go. And for 40 years, 40 years, they stay in between Egypt and Canaan. They don't go back to slavery, but they never go into the land. And even Moses is going to die in the wilderness. And I think here's what's so hard to understand is that God stays with them in the wilderness. He doesn't quit being their God. He doesn't abandon them. He keeps leading them around. He keeps giving them new commands. He gives water. He gives manna. There's more stories about judgment and forgiveness. He is still their God. But it's a tragic end to the story. It's a tragic end to the story because God really, he had something amazing for that generation. I mean, really, it was going to be incredible. These are the ones who got to see the miracles of Egypt. They saw the Passover. They saw the Red Sea split. They saw the manna from heaven. They saw the water from the rock. They heard the voice of God from the mountain, and they marched, led by the presence of God, right up to the edge of a land flowing with blessing. And they turned back. And so God says, you know, I'm not going to work through this people. I'm going to work through their children instead. And so he sends Israel out into the wilderness to die. And so this, this Exodus generation that we've been tracking along with, this is how their story ends. They spend their life accomplishing nothing for the kingdom of God, walking around in circles until they die. So I want us to think about two questions from this story and then two points of application for us this morning. The first question I want us to think about is why did the people rebel? Why did they rebel? I think the answer is that they were more comfortable with the bondage that they were familiar with than the unknown and dangerous blessing of the promises. And the thing about, think about it, the thing about Egypt was it wasn't perfect. <laughs> an understatement, but at least it's a terrible that they were familiar with, right? And they, they would rather have the terrible that they knew than what, was, what lie ahead. And I think that's true for all of us. To leave the familiar for the promise is, is scary. It's frightening. And we can get sucked in and drift back towards Egypt. It reminds me of a student I knew from years back who had taken his faith seriously in high school, but he found himself drifting from his faith and his early to mid-20s. And so we would talk on occasion, and each time we talked, it seemed like he had drifted a little further, a little further, a little deeper into sin, a little less desire for God, a little less desire to be part of a church family. And he would talk about wanting to get his spiritual life back on track, but he never really wanted to change anything. And by the end of us keeping in touch, he was, he was back in Egypt. 
seemingly content to stay tangled up in sin, sort of just numb to the world, numb to the things of God. And for Israel, it was better the devil that we know in Egypt than the devil we don't know in Canaan. Better to be slaves in Egypt than be killed by giants. But the truth was, it was the devil that they knew in Egypt or the blessing that they hadn't experienced yet. But it was scary. And so Israel, they turned back. And if you're familiar with the story, Israel really, at this point, had never had to fight for anything. I'll attack my own and say they were kind of like the millennial generation of the Israelites. Everything was kind of just given to them, right? They, they got freedom from Moses. They got food from heaven. They got water from a rock. People literally handed them jewelry as they left Egypt. They just, this was, only, this was the only time God had ever asked them to fight was right now. Their first, this would have been their first battle. And they probably talked a good talk, but when it came time to fight, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't let the fear and the doubt, or they let the fear and the doubt overcome them, and they walked away. They walked away. So why did the people rebel? I think that's, I think that's why. I think it was fear and doubt. And then the second question I want us to think about is, why did God have no more patience at this point, with the Exodus generation, he says, 10 times I've forgiven you, but, but no more. Why was this the last straw? I mean, why wasn't the golden calf the last straw last week? What, what's different this time? And I don't think the answer is that God was tired of forgiving them, because when we keep reading, we're going to see that he's going to keep forgiving them. He's going to forgive them in the wilderness. The people keep sinning. God keeps providing atonement. So it wasn't their last chance at forgiveness. It was just their last chance to press into the promise. God had called them and their generation to accomplish something. And after this, he said, you're not going to do it. I'm going to give it to the next generation. And I think for us, we can always be forgiven by God, but our sin still has consequences that plays out in the world, right? That just because we've been forgiven doesn't mean our sin doesn't cause things. And so here they are. God brings the blessing of the promise just right up to their nose and says, just go take it. It's right there. They ate the grapes. They could see it. And they turned back to Egypt. And God let them die in the wilderness. And so I think when God brings his promise so close to us that we can taste it and we see it, but we still turn away, we miss the calling and the blessing that he has for us. I think that's true. So now to close, I want us to think about two points of application for us this morning. Number one, there are times in the history of God's people where he calls them to fight for what he has given them. There are times in the history of God's people that he wants us to fight for what he has given us. And if we turn back, he may wait for another generation to rise up instead. I mean, think about this. What is revival? We hear a lot of talk about revival. What is revival? A short definition is just when God decides to move, right? That's it. It's when God decides to move. We can't force it. We can't make it happen. God brings revival when he sees fit. And when his people have a burning desire to do his will. Second Chronicles says, For the eyes of the Lord 
run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. And there's a calling there. And what a season we find ourselves in as a church. This is one of the most difficult and unusual times that a church has ever been through. By my count, we are facing four pandemics. You ready? We have the COVID-19 pandemic. We have the economic pandemic caused by that. We have the pandemic of isolation and the inability of the body of Christ to even gather. And we have the new pandemic, the recently reared old pandemic of racial injustice. Now, I'm not God, but I don't think it's hard to see that God has brought us to a unique moment in history. In some ways, it's kind of incredible to think about that we are the generation that gets to fight these battles this season. We are the ones living through this. What an unusual time. What a calling. There's a calling there for us that when we want to lean into what God's calling us to do, God will move. But this morning, I want us to focus a little bit of our time on that fourth pandemic of racial inequality that has existed in our country for far too long. And that's going to lead to our second point of application. And here it is. God wants us to press into racial healing and unity. God wants us to press in to racial healing and unity. In 1963, a little over a generation ago, many moderate religious leaders told Martin Luther King Jr. that he should be patient. He should wait a little longer. <clears throat> and these were the good guys. These were uh, some of the best religious leaders that were in Birmingham. And in his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, he famously responded, this wait has always, almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. And if you've never read that letter, I would encourage you to read it. And now we are faced with a new opportunity, that with all the violence and unrest, the church has a powerful opportunity to be a light and to be a witness to the world of what is possible in Christ. And guys, the unity of the body of Christ is our inheritance. Let me say that again. The unity of the body of Christ is our inheritance. Jesus prayed for it. Listen to John 17. Jesus prays that they may be one so that the world will know that you have sent me. Jesus says, I want them to be unified because there's gospel power in a unified church. The world can't explain that, especially right now. And the thing that can unite us is that we share the most deeply true thing about us, which is who we are in Christ. And we can start building our unity right there, who we are in Christ, and we'll work our way outward. But not only did Jesus pray for it, Jesus died for it. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus gave his body to tear down the walls that divide, that he might create for himself one new humanity. And so Jesus didn't just die to give us peace and reconciliation with God. He wanted to give us reconciliation with each other. Um, 
Sorry, I knew I'd get a little choked up. Uh, I recently heard Pastor Charlie Dates say that uh, we need to remember that the, the cross has two beams, one vertical, one horizontal. And Jesus died to reconcile us both with God and with each other. Both are essential, and if we miss either beam, we have a distorted gospel. And so we are kind of left with this question that, are we going to take what God has promised us? And this is not a partisan issue. This is not a left versus right issue. This is a Christian issue. And yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to come up short. But we have to press in. And we don't have to get there in one week. You know, the choice was for Israel to start the battle, not to win it in one day, right? As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving. And so our culture, they may quit talking about this next month. Something else might become the new thing. But we aren't going to. We want this. It's ours and we want it. I was recently hearing um, an African-American uh, college student share just about the, what she's been going through the last few weeks. Just so many stories of pain and fear, self-hatred, you know, just scared. And I think it's time for us uh, white people at Calvary to start listening to the stories of our, our, our brothers and sisters of color here. And to just realize what God is calling us to. If you had an adopted sibling, you would know their story, right? You wouldn't be like, I don't know, you know. It's not my story. If they were a part of your family, you would know their story. You know, maybe they got adopted from the Ukraine or somewhere. You would know. You would know the, the history of how they got to be in your family. And so that's, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for unity and, and listening. As my friend Nigel taught me, um, we're not going out to try to redeem our whiteness, right? As if the problem was that the, wor- the virtue of our whiteness is under assault and it needs to be defended. The problem is sin and the fruit is this destruction of racism and it's time for us to listen. So I want to close with Jesus. Um, amazingly, Jesus also found himself at an oasis before a battle in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus looked at the battle ahead. He saw the fear, he saw the danger, and he saw the hardship that the battle would require. But for the joy set before him, he pressed in. And we, his bride, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who are unified in our diversity, we were the joy that he pressed in for. He pressed in for us, and he wants us to press in for each other. So here we are, we stand before the land, and it looks beautiful. So let's press in. Let's press in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ you have torn down the walls that divided Jew and Gentile and that divide all of us because you have a vision for one new man, one new humanity. You want to see Jew and Gentile slave and free, all the peoples of the earth united in a new body of Christ. Lord, that's our vision here. We want to see that happen. We want to do our part. Lord, we pray for our nation, for the unrest, for the violence, for the chaos. Lord, we don't want that. We don't want to see anybody else hurt, anybody else die. We want to see peace in our cities. 
And Lord, we pray that as a church, we could be leaders in bringing about justice and reconciliation under the banner of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.